Good morning, everyone. A couple of things to say to start with. And the first thing is that in your bulletin, you will notice that you've got this blue sheet. This is the home group material for this week, and we have purposely started it in the bulletins so that everybody might know what we're discussing and prepare in your own heart and mind just by reading it through for the home groups which are in the middle of the week. Now, if you're not sure which group to go to, you don't have a particular group that you're um, associated with and you're not sure about it, please do speak with one of us and we will make sure that you're uh, told where the most suitable or nearest home group is for you to go to, on mostly on Wednesday nights, sometimes on Tuesday nights, but mostly on Wednesday nights. And uh, we'll let you know where you can go. But these are the questions that we're discussing, and on uh, Wednesday we'll be discussing the thoughts, things that arise from what we're sharing from God's Word today. And we're putting it in the bulletin from now on so that you will know what's coming up. And even if you, for some reason, can't make it, then you can still focus on the questions and think about what God's Word has to say to you. Now, if you'd like to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians again, and uh, we're going to read a few other verses this time, and we are on page 1173 in the Church Bibles, 1173 in the Church Bibles. If you'd like to borrow a Church Bible, please put your hand up, one will be brought to you. If not, it's, page, it's uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the, the, the riches of his glory inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, over these four weeks of uh, this month, we're looking at four aspects that come out of this letter of the Ephesians, you will know, as we said last week, that at the beginning of the year, we had um, a vision of what we felt God was uh, leading us, which we took from the prayer that comes from Paul at end, the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians. And uh, these were the four elements, that we should be strong, that we should be secure, that we should be committed and growing. 
And as a result of that, there were four prayers that we uh, suggest that we pray on a regular basis as individuals. And you've probably got your bookmark like this, which outlines those four prayers for you so that you can pray them each day. And the first one, which we looked at last week, was, Lord, strengthen me in every part of my life with your power by your Spirit, that comes from that passage in Ephesians. Then today, Lord, help me to be more and more conscious of Christ in my life as I learn to know and trust him. Then committed, I pray for Abbey Church and for all who know Christ that we may grow together in love for one another and in his love for us. And then the last week, Heavenly Father, please fill me with yourself till there's no more room for merely myself so that others may see only you. So there are these four aspects, and here they are, that we're taking from Ephesians here in this particular month. Last week we thought of the blessings of being sons of God, and this week the blessing of being a believer. And this really comes through, some of those blessings come through what Paul prays in this prayer, chapter 1, verse 15 onwards. I don't know about you, but I find prayer a difficult concept. I know what we mean by prayer, of course, we all do. But it's difficult for us to grasp some of the things behind prayer. If God knows everything, why does he want us to tell him what we need? Why should we spend time in prayer when God knows our needs anyway? And there are all sorts of questions. And then, of course, we want to encourage one another to pray. pray. You know, sometimes we try and get more and more people to pray. And that's good and right and proper. But is God more impressed with 50 people? praying than he is with 40 people praying. Is God going to answer more because, you know, we have um, 100 people on our prayer list than he would be if we only had 50 people on our prayer list? And there are all sorts of questions like this that really it's difficult to answer. And this morning, I do not have the answers. So if you want the answers of that, you'll have to look elsewhere. I really don't know. But what we do know about prayer is that we are commanded to pray. And there are lots of aspects that, of course, we do know. It is an expression of our dependence upon God, and God asks us to ask him for those things that we need. And that's why we do it. We do it out of obedience, and we do it because it is the way in which God has chosen to work in answer to our prayers. As uh, John Newton put it, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And that's why we come to pray. That's why our prayer meetings are important. That's why day by day our time that, that Mike was mentioning is important for us because we're commanded to pray. Now this is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. And he's praying for these Ephesian Christians. And he tells us, how he prays. And he starts, verse 15, for this reason. For this reason. Now, what is the reason? For which reason? We should ask ourselves. 
Well, there's lots of things that could be included. For, for a start, it could be because he says in verse 11, we were chosen. In him, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works things, everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. So he says, we were chosen. Then a little bit later in verse 30, he says, and you also were included. So he could say, because we were chosen, and now I can see that you were, pre- you were included in what God is doing, therefore we pray for you. He could mean that. He could mean that he prays for them. The reason for which he prays for them is, well, in verse 3, as we thought about last week, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Verse 7, he redeemed us, brought us back from the power of sin. Verse 11, he chose us for a purpose. Verse 13, he sealed us, are marked us with his Holy Spirit. And Paul bursts out and says, look, I haven't stopped giving thanks yet. For this reason, I'm praying for you. Because of all these things, I'm praying for you. But what he prays, whatever the reason that actually prompted his prayer at this particular time, he says this, whatever, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on to say actually what he's praying for. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So what he's praying for is that these Christians would know him better. He wants them to know more about him. Now, what does he mean by know him better? I mean, Jesus had already died. Jesus had already been raised to life. Jesus had already ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. So how could they actually know him? What does it mean to know him when he's actually not physically with us? Well, he mentions three things, which we'll look at later, but they're in verses 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. That's one. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that's two. And his incomparably great, comparably great power for us who believe. That's three. Three things. The hope, the glorious inheritance, his incomparably great power. Those things are things that he prays for. And those are the things that will help us to know him better. But before we start looking at them, what is meant by knowledge? I was in London um, 10 days ago, and uh, I had to get from one place to another place pretty quickly, and um, somebody else was paying the bill, so I took a taxi. And uh, it wasn't a very long journey, but it was just jumped in the taxi, and I I know London a little bit, and uh, going through London, I, I noticed he was turning off down this little side street and down that little side street and up another road, and I didn't know where on earth he was going this taxi driver, and going all over the place. I mean, I'd have just gone straight down the road and turned left at the end and so on. But no, he was zigzagging. And um, I said, good job, said to the taxi driver, it's good job you know where you're going. Uh, He said, that's what the knowledge is for. Taxi drivers have an exam, and they have 
exam which they call the knowledge. They have to learn their way around London. They have to pass that exam to be able to become a black cab London taxi driver. It's called the knowledge. In other words, he knew where to go. He knew which roads were blocked. He knew which roads were likely to have, uh, will have um, roadworks in them and all that sort of stuff. So he took all down the side streets because he knew that was going to be quicker. At least I hope that was the reason he went that way. <laughs> it was going to be quicker. I, I suppose that's one form of knowledge. Knowing where to go, what to do, because it's something that you've learned. On another occasion, I was with Ivor Cooper, who many of you know, um, it, and we were in India. And we were um, driving through Hyderabad, and we had been given a lift in one of those motorized rickshaws, you know, those little three-wheel things. And uh, you know, if you turn too quickly to the left, you'll fall over, and if you turn too quickly to the right, you'll fall over. But we were zigzagging in this in a hugely dense traffic, zooming backwards and forwards and so on. It's all very exciting stuff and so on in the, in the open there. When all of a sudden, in the middle of the road, in the middle of Hyderabad, the thing came to a standstill. Engine conked out. The driver got out and he pushed it to the side, because they're very light little thing, pushed it to the side and we got out, didn't know what to do. What, where do we go from here? Because we didn't know Hyderabad well. He said, don't worry, be all right. And he went over to the side and before he'd gone about 30 seconds, we were surrounded by about six or eight teenage boys. They seemed about 11 or 12. And they were all starting to unbolt things here and unbolt things there and uh, take this off. And before very long, they pushed it over onto its side so they could get the engine underneath and so on. And I said, well, this is going to be stuck here forever. We've got to go somewhere else to find somewhere. And he said, don't worry, it'll be done in a minute. And this... 12-year-old or 13-year-old boy or whatever he was, he took the engine to bits, took some parts of it off, and uh, took a part out, ran across the road and got something else, came back, put it all, before very long, it was back together, it was all on the road, and we were off again. If I'd said to him, do you know the Honda engine that runs these rickshaws? He'd oh yeah, I know that. That's why he was able to do it. He's only 12 or whatever he was. But he knew it. He knew it. It's because of his experience. He'd probably never read a book about it, never studied the subject at all. But he knew it from experience. It's a different sort of knowledge. Or if I was to say to you, do you know David Cameron? You might say to me, oh yes, I know David Cameron. What you would mean is, not that you knew him personally, that you could go up to him and say, hi, Dave, but that you knew who he was. <coughs> He's the prime minister. And you knew that. Now, there's different sorts of knowledge. And it's important that we understand what Paul is saying because Paul was writing, by and large, to Jewish believers, Hebrew believers. The Greeks used to think in terms of one point leading to another point, leading to another point, which leads to another point, however many there are, which leads to the conclusion. It's called linear thinking. That's how most of us think. But Hebrews, Hebrews didn't think like that. They thought in terms of experience so it says in the Bible, for example, Adam knew Eve and gave birth to a son. doesn't mean he knew who she was when she popped out from behind a tree. Oh, that's Eve. It's not that sort of knowledge. It's not an academic knowledge. It's not a propositional knowledge, but it's knowledge that comes from experience in that case, sexual experience when it says Adam knew Eve. And so they had a child. It's ex something that comes from experience. And it's that that Paul is using here 
when he says, I want you to know something, it's not that we sit down and study the Bible. I personally don't think God is terribly interested whether you can recite all the kings of the Old Testament in order. It's good to study, and God has given it to us for a purpose, but that's not what he means. He wants us to experience things, to come to a knowledge in our day-to-day living. And our experience. So he prays, to these, prays for these believers, I pray that you may know him. Not every step of his life and what he said and what he did, though it's important that we study that so that we do have the experience, but it's knowing him in all his fullness. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, he says in verse 17, 17, I keep praying that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. First of all, he prays for the spirit of wisdom. What is wisdom? You know some people that you meet and they just, you just feel that they're wise people. But it's difficult to put your finger on what it is that makes that person a wise person. Other people may be very clever, but they're not wise. So what's, what actually is wisdom? Let me suggest one uh, way. It's a person, wisdom is the ability to take things that we have experienced, things that we have learned, and so put them in order that they become useful and effective. It's the arranging of truth so that we might practice truth. That's wisdom. So that Paul says to Timothy about the per- someone, we should study the word of God so that we become those who correctly handle the word of truth. I mentioned about the kings of the Old Testament. God's not terribly interested whether you know all the kings of the Old Testament. No, but we do study the kings of the Old Testament not because we're trying to get all that crammed into our minds, but because in learning these things, we pray for God's wisdom so that the things that they went through in the Old Testament, the kings and all the other things, things that they went through are so arranged in our mind that they become useful in our experience. It's not the facts that matter. It's what comes from the facts that matter. So we do need the facts, but we need the experience that comes. That's what wisdom is all about. And here Paul speaks about it. He speaks in verse 13, for example, about them being included in Christ when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. But you know, hearing the word of truth isn't enough. There are thousands of people, millions of people, who've heard the word of truth, but have never done anything about it. So it has not become wisdom to them. It's just facts. But these people, he says, verse 13, you're included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. They came to do something about what they'd heard. That's what real wisdom is. And it's important to realize that otherwise we can think that the more we know here, the better Christians we are. Paul reminds us in Corinthians that we could have all knowledge and if we have not love, we're nothing. So wisdom starts off, knowing wisdom starts off from being able to appropriate the facts and put them in a right order so that they become meaningful in our experience. I mean, you could argue that 
all knowledge that we have, perhaps not all knowledge, but most knowledge that we have, can be written down. And to write it down, you need 26 letters in the English alphabet. So if you know 26 letters, then you know everything. <laughs> well, that's absurd, you say. Of course it's absurd. It's ridiculous to think like that. And uh, what needs to happen is not to know the 26 <coughs> letters, but how to put them all in order to be able to write the truth down and so on. And similarly with our experience, the facts that we learn about the Bible need to be arranged in the right way and worked out in our experience. That's what real wisdom is. But then he goes further than that. I keep asking, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And revelation. You see, wisdom is only half the picture. The problem with wisdom, correctly handling the truth, is that if we're not careful, it can become very quickly a closed system, like a jigsaw. Some of you really like jigsaws. And you're delighted when somebody gives you a 5,000-piece jigsaw. And you spread all the pieces out, and you start with the corners and then the sides, or whatever you particularly go ahead with jigsaws. And uh, eventually you get into the last few and you get to the last one and the last one fits in the space that is for it and the jigsaw is done. But supposing somebody comes along and says, oh, by the way, I've, I've got five more pieces here. Can you fit these in, please? Well, you can't do it because it's a closed system. The picture's there and it just every piece fits together and that's it, finished, done. It's a closed system. And sometimes you know that we can treat Christian truth a bit like that. And um, we get to the point where we learnt this and we've learnt that. We've done our systematic theology. We can read Burkhoff and all the rest of them and, and get all our systematic theology sorted out and so on. And it becomes for us a closed system. And incidentally, there are many people who study God's word like that and the gospel and the truth of God's word becomes cold and dry, and legalistic. Paul is arguing against that. He says you not only need wisdom, you need a spirit of revelation. So that there's an unveiling. That's what the word actually is here. An apocalypse, that's the word in the Greek for the word revelation. An apocalypse. It means the drawing aside of the curtain. You need this spirit of revelation so that as you're learning, as you're being wise and taking the facts and you're putting them in order and so on, God can reveal new things from over here and over there and the word becomes alive and living and the spirit of God begins to reveal new truth to you. He talks about how it happened in his own experience in chapter 3 when he said... Um, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. In other words, Paul knew the Old Testament very well, but when the New Testament came along, God gave him clear revelation, and he speaks about writing it down so that we might have it. And uh, we don't mean by this that there's new truth to be invented. 
But there's new insights into God's word that we may have forgotten, that we may have overlooked. Nothing that God reveals is contrary to God's word. His word is complete, but he takes the word and by his spirit he brings forth new truth from it. As John Robinson said in the 1600s, God has yet more light and truth to break forth from God's word. So that when we meet together, we don't just meet to study theology or even to just learn facts, though hopefully we will have a good content of both of those. What we ask is that God, in taking these facts, will reveal new truths to us so that we might learn to love him better and grow more like him day by day. So truth is not just a case of marshalling facts. Knowing him better is not just a case of marshalling facts. But the Spirit unveiling out of them new truth in the soul of the believer. Notice how he puts it here. I pray that the, glory, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The work of the Spirit in our hearts through his word that does this, which is why the Holy Spirit is talked of. Jesus said in John 14, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will give, he will teach you all things. Or in chapter 16 he says, when he the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. So day by day we should be praying not only that we'll learn new things by studying, but that you begin to experience this on a day-to-day basis as the Spirit takes the truth and reveals it in new experience in our lives. But when that happens, what do we know? Well, we've already touched on it, and let's enlarge on it slightly as we finish. I said there are three things. When we know him like that, Spirit of truth, the Spirit of revelation, when that happens, Spirit of wisdom, revelation, three things we shall get to know. I pray that the hearts of your, uh, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Notice this is an objective hope. It's not the fact that we're hoping in him or trusting in him. He's not speaking about that here, but he's speaking about an objective. What is it that we've been called to, the hope to which we have been called, to which he's called you? He's not talking here about our feelings. He's talking about the very things that God has planned for us. 1 Peter chapter 3 says that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. If you look through the New Testament, there are several places where that hope is spoken of. We've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, says uh, says Peter, beginning of his little letter. So our hope is a living hope, the life of Christ. It's a steadfast hope, says the writer to the Hebrews, seeing we have this as a steadfast anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, is the hope that we have, Hebrews 6. It's a joyful hope. Speaks in Titus about our blessed God, and that's the word happy, our happy God. It's a joyful hope that we've been called to. It's a clean hope. 1 John 1, seeing we have such a hope, we purify ourselves as he is pure. So it's a living hope. It's a steadfast hope. It's a joyful hope. It's a clean hope. The hope to which he's called us. 
And we look forward to that time. That's what he wants revealed to them in their hearts and minds and worked out in their experience. Second thing, not only the hope to which we are called, but he says, and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We think a lot about our riches in Christ, and rightly so. But here he's speaking about his riches in the saints. Have you ever thought of the fact that Jesus looks forward to the time when we shall be in his, he his presence, and in us, his inheritance will become complete. He speaks of that a little later on in this letter. We'll get to it eventually. But we are the, his inheritance. I think that gives not only strength to us, but gives us every motivation for living a pure, upright, holy life that will glorify him. Because one day we're going to be his inheritance in, the, in, in heaven itself. He's called us to, uh, to know the hope to which he has called us, his glorious inheritance in the saints. And lastly, he prays that they will know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power. And if you want to know what that power is like, well, he tells you. It's the power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given. That power is what he prays that they might know. His resurrection power. It's quite a prayer, isn't it? It tells us how we should be praying for each other. You know, it's not the children's God bless mommy and daddy and God bless the missionary stuff here. He's thinking about all that we have in Christ and he prays for these believers. God, would you please help them to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so they may know you better. I want them to know your incomparably great power. I want them to know that they're your inheritance. I want, th want them to know the riches to which they've been called, hope to which we've been called. And he prays about it in detail. What an example to us in our praying. Let me finish with verse 21. He prays that we may know the power that raised up Christ and seated him at the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If you go to Barclay Castle, as many of you all have done just down the road, in Barclay Castle there is a presence, uh, a hall there, which is sometimes called in some castles a presence gallery. There's one in many of our great castles. And it's a hall, and you'll see on the walls, shields of great leaders in the old days of the Saxon kings of our country and the thanes, as some of them were called. And what those presence galleries were for was when the king was coming to a particular area, he would gather together all those who were local kings, the king of, Saxon, uh, the king of Essex and the king of Wessex and all those people, and they would all come, and they would come with their retinue. They'd stand under their shield, their coat of arms. 
with their soldiers, and they try and look very, very important. But then the doors would open at the end, and the one who had conquered them all, the king of the United Kingdom, would come, and he would come through, and he would, as he came past, first one knee would bow, and then another knee would bow, another knee would bow, another knee, would bow, until eventually he would go up to the top, up a couple of steps to his throne at the top, and he would sit down far above every name that was named, and every rule, and every authority, and every knee would bow and acknowledge him to be king over all. And that's what Paul says here. Jesus is like that. Oh yes, there are many who claim authority, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be Lord and authority. And he says in verse 22, he's put all things under his feet, appointed him head over everything, and notice this, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. He is in authority over everything. And it's for the church, for us. No wonder Paul prays such a magnificent prayer. And we too should learn to pray for each other like this and ask that God also in our own lives will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we know him better. Let's close by singing together a song that asks that we shall know him better. And we shall stand to sing, um, All I Once Held Dear. And the chorus is, Knowing you, Jesus, there's no greater thing than knowing you.